This is The Big Interview. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. This is a podcast that delves deep into a myriad of real-life remarkable stories. We do love a good yarn, but beyond that, we explore how individuals find their purpose, how people react to the unexpected, and what happens when they're pushed to the brink. the heart and soul of the 1980s as well as Back to the Future. Now, all three entries, I should point out, for those of you that aren't aware of the movie or the trilogies, all three entries in the Back to the Future trilogy were written by the man by the name of Bob Gale. And the series, it's fair to say, remains his magnum opus, one of the most beloved franchises in cinematic history. And myself and producer Tom were talking about this. Bless Bob, because he didn't actually do much else. He peaked. He peaked. Back to the Future was the beginning, the middle and the end to Bob Gale's writing abilities. That was the one that he had this vision, he put it down on paper and it became the giant of the silver screen that it's still today. Yeah, I suppose because it's, it's such an unusual or it was such at the time, it was a very original story. Very much so. That's part of the reason that it's endured, I think, is because it is... It's original. Uh, and, th- you know, the, the movie, there's no doubt the first movie is the one that really captures people's imagination. The original film, it was released in 1985, um, and the ambitious sequels, and here's a stat for you, they were actually shot back to back and released within six months of each other in 1989 odd, and 1990. Absolutely. I remember Peter Jackson with Lord of the Rings, there were always big festive fairs. There would be a year. Filming back-to-back isn't odd. A lot of trilogies and a lot of series, and uh, they'll do just that. It brings down production costs. The fact they were released within six months certainly was. Now, combined, the trilogy actually grossed a staggering 970 million US dollars worldwide. It catapulted its stars, Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, into pop culture superstardom. And it's an amazing story, this, and you're going to hear as to exactly why it is. Now, a couple of little stats to put you in the picture with a quiz question that often comes up, and this is no word of a lie. The initial idea for the time machine wasn't the yes. famous DeLorean. No. It was actually a fridge. I know. Yeah, that's one of the few things that I do know about Back to the Future. The plan was to roll out a time machine fridge. It could have worked. Could have. The DeLorean is such oh, a huge look, part. Yeah, the DeLorean was iconic, but the fridge, they could have made that work. I'm not sure. I'm not having that. Gail was the one to dismiss it on the basis that it would cause kids to climb inside and get stuck. The fear was that this movie, they obviously backed themselves that this movie would be a smash hit. They weren't fearful that 17-year-olds would start trying to drive the DeLorean at a certain speed. Potentially, but I think it was weighed up. DeLorean or a fridge, let's go with the DeLorean. After tinkering with the idea, Bob Gale actually realised that he hit gold when he decided that DeLorean should be the time machine. Now, John DeLorean later wrote that Gale and Robert Zemeckis, who is the director as well as the co-writer, he actually sent them a thank you note for using his car. Brilliant. So because, of course, the DeLorean was picked, that was the one that uh, both Bob and Robert decided to go with. Obviously, John is absolutely cock-a-hoop with that decision. Uh, Once filming began, Universal's product placement team, they actually got an offer from Ford. Now, production had begun. Word swept around that the DeLorean had been chosen for this brand-new Hollywood, well, what they would hope would be a smash hit. Ford got wind and went, whoa, 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 whoa. This is product placement 101. They actually offered 
Bob and Robert, 75,000 US dollars, which is about 171,000 US dollars in today's money if the time machine was switched from a DeLorean to a Ford Mustang. Ford were ready to pay. Uh, Gail's, uh, it, it's really response. weird because, because of what's happened to the DeLorean and the fact that it has basically been put out to pasture a long time ago. It's, it, almost, it's, it, it's retained that iconic... You think of DeLorean and you think of Back to yes, the Future. absolutely. The problem with Ford is it's just too mass market. Back to the Future wouldn't have owned that car in the same way that it owned the DeLorean. They might have owned the Mustang, though. Because, in a, in a, and I know what you're saying in a weird sort of way, and it would actually be great to, to get the team from DeLorean on. I wonder if it actually had the negative effect. Because as you say, the DeLorean became so synonymous with history in a movie. That, did, it, did it shift cars off the production line? I'm not quite sure. I think it was quite a rubbish car, actually. <laughs> Whisper that one quietly. Uh, Gail's uh, iconic response, by the way, to Ford's request to insert a Mustang was, and I've got to be careful here, Doc Brown doesn't drive a bleep Mustang. <laughs> Amazing. He's absolutely spot That's on. That's a man with. who sticks to his principles. Uh, Johnny Depp, there's another little fact for you. Johnny Depp auditioned for the role of Marty McFly, obviously. Wow. He, he must have been young at the time He would well. have been a very, very young. Uh, Oscars were won. The film won an Oscar for the best sound effects, editing. Zemeckis and, uh, uh, Zemeckis and Gale were Oscar nominated. They didn't win for best original screenplay. So there's a couple of facts to tell you about. And let's get into this because Bob gave up an awful lot of his time to have a little natter with me. And I wanted to find out first and foremost, the inspiration... You've already alluded to it, Rob. It was a bit different. It was very original during its time and its heyday. So where did the inspiration for the movie actually come from? In the summer of 1980, I was visiting my parents in the house that I uh, spent most of my childhood in, a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. And for some reason, I was digging around in the basement, and I found my father's high school yearbook. Uh, it was interesting to me because I attended the same high school that my father did 29 years uh, later. And I thought, oh, this will be interesting. Let's see what my high school looked like back then. And I discovered that my dad had been the president of his graduating class, uh, something I never knew. And I'm looking at this picture of my dad looking very serious and, and proper and um, thinking to myself, boy, I didn't get along at all with the president of my graduating class. If I had gone to school with my dad, would I have even been friends with him? Or would he have been like the guy that was the president of my class? And that was when the proverbial lightning bolt struck me. And I thought, now there's a good idea for a movie. A kid <laughs> goes back in time and ends up in high school with his dad. So I went back to California and I told this story to Bob Zemeckis. And he got very excited about it. And he said, and yeah, what if your mom went to the same high school? And all the things that she said she never did with a boy, she did them all. And uh, that's how it got started. I'm loving this already. <laughs> Just and Bob, through. incidentally, he's 69 now, which means at the time, in 1985, or, or at least when he got the idea, he would have been in his early 30s. Yeah, it was back in the early 80s, it was, or late 90s, that he had the idea before it would eventually, uh, the movie that has come to fruition. So, yeah, he was just going through the yearbook, pondered, as we all do, had a thought. Of course, we don't have the wherewithal to actually follow that through, but uh, on this instance, he did. And as I alluded to a little earlier, Back to the Future, a rip-roaring success. The actual first movie, it grossed 389 million US dollars against just a $19 million budget, making it the highest-grossing film release of 1985. But actually getting it to the big screen, however, well, that was not straightforward, as Bob explains here. We set the project up at Columbia Pictures in uh, September of 19, 
80. And our first draft was dated uh, sometime in February 81. Wow. Then we did a second draft uh, that was dated April of 81. And Columbia didn't want to make the picture. They just decided that uh, it wasn't in tune with what was popular in the marketplace. So they gave it back to us uh, in what's called turnaround, in which the uh, the producers, directors, the filmmakers get a chance to take the project to other places, try to set it up. And if uh, we can do that, then the original studio gets their money back. So that's what we tried to do. And we went to every studio and every independent producer, and we just got rejection after rejection after rejection, a uh, total of over 40 rejections. Wow. Um, Zemeckis is frustrated by not being able to direct. So, um, he decides I'm going to direct the next decent script that comes along. And it was something called romancing the stone. Uh, so in 1983, uh, he goes off to make romancing the stone comes out in 1984. Um, it's a giant big hit. Everybody in the world wants to make his next movie. The next movie he wants to make is back to the future. Uh, and we set the project up with our friend Steven Spielberg, who had just set up Amblin Entertainment uh, on the Universal Studios lot. And Back to the Future became the very first movie to have the Amblin logo on it at the end. 40 rejections. That's amazing. And that's consistent with so many stories of epic stuff that, they've, that they, they were turned down so many times and it requires... prior to actually getting the okay, which shows how poor people's foresight is. Yeah. Supposed experts looked at it and went, ah, oh, that won't be popular. And it won't be. 40 rejections, and it took the genius of Robert Zemeckis. And I heard there from Bob, that was a rip-roaring success, and it was off the back of that that Robert Zemeckis could say, okay, yeah, you want me now? Well, I've got the script that I want to make, and it's back to the future. And, and Bob did say off-air, hugely grateful of that because yeah. he was on the scrap heap. Back to the Future was going nowhere unless Robert Zemeckis had had that success with Romancing the Stone. Fortunately, he did. He could then demand on his terms what he did next, and that was Back to the Future. But I wanted to find out, this story is legendary, and I wanted to find out if it's true, just how did they manage to snare Michael J. Fox for the role of Marty McFly? Because, Robert, Eric Stoltz, he was originally cast as Marty McFly. Eric Stoltz, who's appeared in a number of movies, one of them being, and it was producer Tom who pointed out this, Pulp Fiction. I think he has a little cameo in that. So how did that whole episode evolve? You've already selected the actor that you want to play, Marty McFly, and yet Michael J. Fox, his shadow looms, and it looms large. And yes, unsurprisingly, Steven Spielberg, he does feature heavily in this little anecdote. Well, when we started casting, Michael J. Fox was our original first choice. We'd seen Family Ties. We thought he he was perfect for the part. So the first submission and call that we made was to uh, the producer of a TV series called Family Ties, which was in production. So Michael was was working. He, he was a working actor uh, in this very popular television series. And Gary Goldberg, the producer, read the script. And uh, he called us up and he said, guys, um, I'm not even going to let Michael read this script because this script is so good that he'll be mad at me when I tell him he can't do it. He said, I just can't let him out of the show right now. Um, it's our, our production schedule is too difficult and sorry. Um, so we understood that. 
And then we set out on a big, gigantic casting search uh, all over the United States. We sent uh, casting people to to all all cities, uh, New York, of course, Chicago, Atlanta, uh, down in Texas, everywhere, trying to find the perfect Marty McFly. We actually pushed our start date back uh, by about a month, maybe six weeks, because we couldn't find the perfect guy. And Universal Studios was very high on a movie called Mask, uh, starring Eric Stoltz, which had just come out. It was a drama. Um, Eric was very good in it, um, but it was a drama. It didn't show whether he could be funny or not. <clears throat> and the head of MCA, uh, Sid Scheinberg, he was so bullish on, on Eric Stoltz that he basically said to us one day, I'm so certain that Stoltz can do anything and he's going to be great in this, that um, if you start shooting with him and it doesn't work out, um, you can recast and start all over again with somebody else. Now, of course, he never expected that we would ever take him up on that, <laughs> uh, nor did we, actually, because we wanted things to work out with Eric. But they didn't. Um, after about five weeks, uh, Bob Zemeckis, the director, had put together enough of the film that we could watch it and see that, it just wasn't as funny as we wanted it to be. And so he showed it to Spielberg and, and uh, Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy, other executive producers, and everybody agreed that we had a problem. And Spielberg advised us that um, if you're going to try to cast somebody else, um, don't shut down production. Keep going, because if you shut down, it'll be really hard to, uh, uh, to start up again. So naturally, the first call we made was to Gary Goldberg. And my memory, which might not be accurate, but it's a good story, so I'll tell it, uh, is that uh, Bob Zemeckis, uh, co-producer Neil Kent, and I went to Gary's office, and we literally got down on our knees uh, <laughs> and begged him to let us uh, let us have Michael J. Fox. Okay, so now we're uh, 10 or 12 weeks later, maybe 16 weeks later than when we had our initial conversation. And Gary responded. He realized we were in big trouble. And he knew, of course, having read the script, that Michael was indeed perfect. He said, I'll tell you guys what. Um, if you would agree to put family ties in first position and adjust your shooting schedule around ours, and Michael is up for doing that, um, okay, uh, you, you can, we'll, we'll make that work. So Michael read the script, and he loved it. And, uh, you know, the producer said, you know, Michael, you're not going to get much sleep. He said, sleep? I'm 22 years old. What the hell do I need sleep for? So our shooting schedule was Michael would work on family ties from about nine o'clock in the morning till five or five thirty in the evening on Monday through Thursday. Car would pick him up from Paramount, bring him over to Universal or our shooting location. We'd work with Michael till one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning. And he'd do that again every day, except on Friday when they filmed um, family ties in front of a live audience and we didn't get him until 10 p.m. Wow. And then we worked with him from 10 or 10.30 uh, till dawn. So we made most of the movie under a schedule like that. And it's a testament to Bob Zemeckis' directing and, uh, and, and the talent of our cast that it, it all worked and it, and it goes together seamlessly. That's incredible. That is unbelievable. I have a new appreciation. I did, when hearing that anecdote from Bob, a new appreciation for Michael J. Fox. Monday through Thursday. Just finish up. imagine how great you would feel, though, to be 
simultaneously popping from one Hollywood studio to another. 22 years of age. You were just... But it shows you the craft as well and and it shows you the kind of hard-working nature. He was doing the show Family Ties on a Friday in front of a live studio audience, Rob. Now, you think of how knackered sometimes we are talking for three hours when no one can see us. He was doing it in front of a live studio audience. A car was waiting for him on a Friday night and then he'd go and shoot Back to the Future until dawn. And he is fantastically funny. He appears, I, I keep banging on about Curb Your Enthusiasm, but he appears as a cameo role in a, in a late season episode with Larry David and he is absolutely hilarious in that. There's just a natural yeah. com- comedic quality that he has that, that has not left him and obviously that's what they notice. Spielberg is a genius at just getting the right cast and the right, the right uh, actor to play the right role. It's part of it. Now, we heard Eric Stoltz spare a thought for that young man when listening to this. My fondest memory of, of Back to the Future is the first night that Michael J. Fox came to work. Because here we were, we were shooting the, the Twin Pines Mall sequence. And the week before, we had just fired Eric Stoltz. And this is an unprecedented thing. I mean, nobody does this. You re- might replace an actor after a few days or a week or maybe 10 days. But to replace an actor after five and a half weeks of shooting, no one had ever done anything like this. And the crew thought we were nuts <laughs> and we weren't quite sure whether we were sane either. But Michael comes to work and uh, he's filming with Christopher Lloyd um, the, the scene when, they're, uh, when the DeLorean travels through time. And boy, it's just magic. And you could just feel it on the set that there was this giant weight that was lifted off of everybody. And everybody said, oh, my God, this kid is great. He is Marty McFly. The movie's going to work. Uh, that is my fondest memory of the first movie. And that is it. They are one in the same. Michael J. Fox is Marty McFly. It's been a thought, though, for Eric. I know. Eric Stoltz. That's a toughie. Five and a half weeks. Oh, young man word. himself, you're told, eh, eh, not for us, Tara. The initial movie so iconic that the, the, there's... Divided opinions about the sequels and the the third third one. one, You won't be listening. Not a fan of the third one, in all honesty. But it's each to their own. It still made them truckloads of money. It is still part of that trilogy. I had to ask Bob: Was the trilogy always part of the long, I guess, long-term thinking? No, no, not at all. Uh, We had, as I said, we had such a hard time getting the movie made (laughs) in the first place. You know, we were thrilled just to be making one movie. and people say, well, with that ending, you, surely you must have been thinking about a sequel. Well, no, actually, the ending is very satisfying by itself. Our, you know, our heroes go off uh, into the proverbial sunset to have another adventure. Uh, Bob Zemeckis has said many times, if I knew I was making a sequel, I would have never had Jennifer get in the car. <laughs> because when it came time for us to, to do the sequel, and we said, oh, my God, what are we going to do with Jennifer? She's not really a very well-developed character, and uh, she's kind of... You know, she's, she's kind of a fifth wheel here. Uh, what are we going to do? And uh, <laughs> she's unconscious for most for most of Back to the Future too. Uh, that was the best we could come up. <laughs> I'm sure she didn't appreciate that when she saw the script. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, at least he's being honest, Bob, that they didn't really think it through. And if they had, then Jennifer may well not. And Jennifer, of course, the love interest of Martin McFly in the movie. She might never have been in it. Now, one of the other things that Kat really kind of stands uh, stands out in the films, Back to the Future, the DeLorean we've touched on, the Nike laceless trainers, which were, were iconic at the time, the hoverboard. Again, that was in Back to the Future 2. So where did the inspiration from all of these quote-unquote futuristic items actually come from? Unlike futurists who are always trying to think about 
all right, what is really going to happen here? And, and, and yes, we did do some, do a lot of research on that. Our idea was, okay, we want the future to be a nice place to live. We're not going to do a dystopian future where everybody has shaved heads and has to wear a uniform. Uh, that is out. We want the future to be a place that people look forward to and let's make it funny. Let's have fun with the technology that we have and try to push it to the next level. So, and, and everything was a riff on what we did in the first movie. So we had a skateboard chase <laughs> and we said, okay, what, what's the, what's the future equivalent of a skateboard hoverboard. And we had a scene in the cafe, uh, in the fifties. And we said, okay, what's the, what's the cafe of 2015 going to look like? And we thought, okay, cafe eighties, that's funny. Uh, and that's a prediction that came true that people would be nostalgic about it. And we thought, okay, what kind of goofy technology can we put in here? And we did all that stuff and it's funny. And we had a dinner table scene too, two dinner table scenes in the first movie. Uh, so we said, we got to have a dinner table scene at the McFly house. So we did that and we have the pizza hydrator and the, uh, you know, the organic fruit thing that comes uh, suspended from the ceiling so that everybody can get fresh fruit immediately. And these were all just riffs that we did on the first movie and said, okay, let's take this technology and project it into the future. And some stuff we got right, you know, the, the teleconferencing when, uh, when uh, Marty senior has his, has his call with uh, needles on television. Well, you know, we're all doing that on zoom these days. So, yeah, we got some stuff right. We didn't ever think we'd really have flying cars. But, hey, every every month you read about somebody who's developing some other version of the flying car. It's amazing. Should we have flying cars? Good question. People have a hard enough time driving in two dimensions. Do we give them a third? <laughs> I don't know. He's brilliant, is Bob. I thoroughly had a great time interviewing him. And I wanted to find out from him because what keeps fans coming back? What makes the movie so special it's the human element that really is what makes it what makes it work uh every human being no matter what their culture what time period they're in at some point when they're seven eight nine maybe ten years old they understand fully oh my goodness my parents were once children i mean this is really a cosmic concept for a kid because you you know, you've grown up the first few years of your life and your parents are these godlike figures. Uh, they don't age as far as you can tell. Um, they must have always been there. And then suddenly you realize, oh, wait a minute. They they actually were kids at one time. And then you get a little bit older than that and you start to understand uh, about the birds and the bees. And you realize, oh, my God, my parents did that. Um, <laughs> that's. That's how I got here. Uh, and then you start to think, what did my parents do on their first date? You know, did my dad make the first move? Did my mom make the first move? What would it like to what would it be like to be a fly on the wall during their first date? And it doesn't matter who you are. You think about this stuff. Um, some more than others, perhaps sometimes in uh, more or less detail than you might want. But um, it is a basic human thing. And it applies to everybody. So you have that one primarily, I think, is 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 what attracts everybody to this to this story. And then 
it has the the secondary um, message that we have some control over our own destiny, that the choices that we make uh, early in our lives can have a major effect on how we turn out, which is, of course, illustrated in the George McFly story. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see what happened to George when he didn't stand up to the bully. And then at the end of the picture, we see what happens to him when he did stand up to the bully. And I think everybody kind of intrinsically knows this, um, but uh, to have it, uh, to be reminded of it, uh, that gives you a good feeling that you just walk out of the, you turn off the movie, you walk out of theater, whatever, and you say, boy, you know what? Um, you know, maybe I'm going to, maybe I'm going to take that job or maybe I'm going to quit that job or I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask that person out on a date. Um, it, it just kind of reminds you that you can do things and those things can be really important. Speak for yourself, Bob. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> I did not wish at any point to be a fly on the wall when my parents got together. No, thank you, Bob. Not for me. And probably Some not things for... have been left unseen. <laughs> exactly. And that's that, one Bob. of them. Maybe not for Bob, though, weirdly enough. But we finish <laughs> up. <laughs> bizarre, that. Well, we've seen so many film franchises reborn in recent years. I'm thinking Star Wars creating their new films for a new audience. Mandalorian. Car- Mandalorian. Karate yeah. Kid as well that's taken flight once again. So I had to ask, can we expect to see another Back to the Future? Is Bob tempted at all? Brace yourselves. No, we're, we're not thinking about that at all. I mean, primarily the reason is that, you know, Michael J. Fox has Parkinson's disease. Of course. And you don't want to see uh, Back to the Future without Michael J. Fox. That, that's just wrong. So, so that's, that's one of the primary reasons. Um, we appreciate the fact that people want more Back to the Future. And as a result, uh, we have, uh, uh, we've created the Back to the Future, the musical, which uh, is going to open in London in May uh, after a brief run in Manchester that was shut down uh, by COVID. Uh, the show is absolutely fantastic. It's a stage musical version retelling of the first movie. It is not a slavish adaptation. It utilizes all the great things that you can do on stage. Our new, uh, our new Back to the Future uh, 4K uh, and Blu-ray set actually has about 30 minutes devoted to uh, showing some behind-the-scenes stuff about, about Back to the Future, the musical. So this is the way that, that Bob Zemeckis and I decided to give the world more Back to the Future. Because we've seen too many, uh, too many sequels uh, made years and years later, where you just kind of say, "Oh God, they shouldn't have gone back <laughs> to the well. Uh, I wish they hadn't have done that. They ruined my childhood." Um, <laughs> all, all kinds of things like that. And we felt that, you know, Back to the Future, as as the trilogy, it works so beautifully. Uh, it tells a complete story from beginning to end with the characters maturing and growing. Um, let's leave well enough alone, and we're going to be the guys that don't do what everybody else does. Yeah, I love it. Hallelujah to that, Bob. If more people in Hollywood like Bob, we wouldn't have to sit through the likes of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull 
or the 27th iteration of Star Wars, mm-hmm. we would be spared all of that nonsense. More power. That is something we agree with Bob on. Ah, could not agree more with Bob. Could not agree less with him on the previous. <laughs> could not agree more with him on that one. Thank you so much to Bob Legend. for sparing his time. And a little sad there that we will not be getting any more iterations of Back to the Future. But as it is, it is a work of timeless beauty and art. Thanks for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.